Hey everyone, welcome back and you're listening to the Goodbye Privacy Podcast. I am your host, James Azar. Find me on Twitter, James underscore Azar1, where you can interact, send me your funny memes, or just talk about privacy. On today's episode, Microsoft, the comeback of the empire. President Trump declares a national IT emergency and a WhatsApp breach. But before we get started on today's episode, you guys are obviously loyal listeners of CyberHub Engage, and we do really appreciate it, whether you listen to our flagship CyberHub Engage podcast or our Goodbye Privacy podcast. We appreciate the fact that you listen to us. We are working hard to get you the best content, interview the right people, and make sure that you get all the latest and greatest news in security and privacy. But we are asking you for your support. If you can go to patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage, again, that's patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage, you could support us financially there for as little as a dollar a month, or if you want to give us more, you sure can. Um, you get really exclusive access to us here backstage during and after the show. You get some really cool swag, so make sure you go to patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage. We're going to be updating and releasing very exclusive content only to our Patreon subscribers and members. So if you're not on Patreon, you're probably missing out on some of our better content. It's even more revolutionary than what you're going to hear today. So again, go to patreon.com forward slash cyberhub engage and you will have my eternal thanks. Now on to today's show. Today's show, if you're uh, listening if and, and if you're a weekly listener to our podcast. You, typically, we do one episode, 30 to 45 minutes on one topic. And if you're not following us on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, you, you obviously haven't seen one of our new segments called 60 Seconds of Cyber. It's kind of a daily segment where we talk about some of the latest cyber headlines. And this week has been insane. The fact is, from Tuesday till today, and I'm recording this on Thursday, May 16th, we have been working around the clock, catching up with all the different cyber news that have come out this week. So I'm changing the format slightly this week to address all the different headlines that we typically don't have in cybersecurity and privacy. And so I want to kick off today's episode by talking about President Trump's declaration of a national emergency by executive order to block transactions that involve information or communication technology that, and I quote, poses an unacceptable risk to the national security of the United States. Immediately after this executive order, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross added Chinese company Weiwei Technologies and its affiliates to the Bureau of Industry and Security entity list, making it more difficult for the company itself to do business with U.S. companies. It also essentially means that in order to buy or sell technology to the Chinese firm, a U.S. company would need to get a license issued by the Bureau of Industry and Security complicating the way people do business with the Chinese firm or any firm that deems or poses as a risk to the, to the national security of the United States. One of the common things about this executive order is I think it's more tied to the trade war with China and national security. Now, for years, people that I know within the defense industry, within DOD and Homeland Security and other industries have argued the fact that our dependence on 
critical technology products coming from China is going to endanger our national security. And, when, uh, and should a conflict arise, whether it be a trade war or a armed conflict or a political uh, discourse, this technology could put us at risk and give China the upper hand because we're so reliant on them. President Trump, during his campaign um, in 2015 and 2016, prior to getting elected, had a America first kind of mentality. This executive order, I believe, is no different in the fact that President Trump is keeping his campaign promise of putting America first. He's not allowing us to go into a bad trade deal with China, and he's doubling down on all the pressure when it comes to this trade war. All of which makes absolute and complete sense. Simply from the standpoint of President Trump is a negotiator. He wrote the book, The Art of the Deal. People can argue of whether or not he's been successful. But for anyone, and, and, and I love this argument because it's it's always done. Um, and, and I had an argument very similar to this last night. Well, President Trump wasn't that successful in business. Well, matter of fact is he was, and he failed. And so I asked these same people, who are some of the entrepreneurs or business people you follow, you look up to? And many of them have had failures during their career before they did something very successful. And President Trump is no different. He failed in a lot of businesses that he tried, but then eventually he succeeded and now he's the president of the United States. And so one ought to not underestimate his judgment in this specific executive order. I think it makes a lot of sense for the U.S. I've been strongly advocating that we need to produce our own technology in the U.S. from A to Z if it's being used for national infrastructure, whether it be telecom, internet, or otherwise. My key argument for this is no matter where you get it from, if tomorrow we've got a conflict and they can get a backdoor access to it, where does that leave the U.S.? So I've been a strong advocate of bringing that type of manufacturing back to the U.S. And yes, it's a little bit more expensive, but are we willing to pay the 20 or 25% premium now instead of having to you know, be weakened in case we want to stand up for something we believe in? And if you've got an opinion on this, you're more than welcome to join my discussion on Twitter, James underscore Azar1. We can have a great conversation on this very topic. You can uh, obviously message us and email us. I'd love to be able to keep this conversation going on this specific topic and hear other people's point of view. Outside of that, I want to get to our main story today, Microsoft. So Microsoft's a household name, an organization that for years has been steadily leading the market. But the rise of Apple in the late 90s, early 2000s, and iPhone, and the iMac, and so much stuff made Microsoft seem like an old, outdated company. They were the old guys on the block. In recent years, though, Microsoft has been working hard to change that perception with consumers and power a comeback. The Microsoft of today, of 2019, is working on all fronts and technologies. A lot of this they did by opening retail locations, cool commercials with, you know, they, they have one commercial with Common on the Microsoft AI that aired during the Super Bowl. Um, it's everywhere online talking about all the great technologies that they have and all the great things that they are doing. 
But as I always say, competition is always great for us. Cons- it's always great for us consumers. It means better products at more attractive prices. It means better technology. It lets and I'm all for it. But let's see if the Microsoft empire can really resurrect itself. And at what price to us consumers are they resurrecting themselves with? By far, one of the most popular Microsoft products is their Office Suite. It's been their comment. The only reason Microsoft was still in business with the rise of Apple had to do with the rise of and, and, and the fact that there was never any real competition to Microsoft Office. Word, PowerPoint, Excel are still dominant. They have a 90% market share. Um, nothing else comes close. I mean, Google Docs have tried to come close. They don't have nearly the amount of adoption um, that they expected with it. Those products, in in Google's perspective, have essentially almost failed. Um, OpenText, which was the open-source version of Word, never really picked up steam. While it's used by many who don't want to pay the licensing fee to Microsoft, because of the outrageous fees that Microsoft were charging, because of the monopoly they had, Microsoft kind of changed that with Office 365, but we're going to get to Office 365 in a bit. What I really want to talk about is Xbox, because that's where Microsoft really built its business as Apple rose, realizing that they couldn't compete with the chic and the innovation of Apple. And I don't know that to be true, but when you look at the production of Microsoft in the years that Apple really excelled, the only thing Microsoft was really investing, buying, and acquiring were video games thinking they wanted to dominate the video game industry and they do with the xbox council right today an xbox council isn't just a video game council you can browse the internet watch movies stream netflix there's so much that you can do with an xbox today and it's all hooked online to xbox live you can chat with your friends it's much more than a gaming council Um, and it's become the center of your life the evolution of our younger generation, and, and if you think of, I think, my generation and younger, we are a gaming generation, and whether it be PlayStation or Xbox, Nintendo, or uh, the Nintendo Wii, or any of the other game consoles. I haven't, my wife won't let me get any gaming consoles, so I've been out of the gaming game for quite some time now. <laughs> um, but this evolution does apply to the younger generation, and it makes the Xbox, the center of life and access point for everything. And one of my uh, favorite things to do on YouTube is Google Gaming Council, you know, girlfriend destroying it or a dad destroying a Xbox to his son. There's a guy on uh, on Facebook and YouTube that has a page where the brothers record, the brother is, uh, the older brother is recording his younger brother have his Xbox destroyed by his dad like once a month because the kid just won't get a job and is just stuck on his gaming console. Really funny, but it got me thinking on this whole privacy aspect of it. They've got the gaming console game done down. They've been able to multi-layer the gaming console outside of gaming to also stream Netflix and do so much more. So where does that leave us? Well, that's the first thing, Xbox. But now let's move to the second thing I really want to talk about. And that's Microsoft did is recognize that more businesses uses its products. And so they refocused there. And they did this. We'll go back to Office 365, Microsoft Azure, Microsoft AI. 
the acquisition of GitHub in 2018. They bought Skype, Microsoft OneDrive, their answer to Dropbox, Microsoft Dynamics, the number one competitor to Salesforce, their data platform, Microsoft Advertising for all their Bing and all Microsoft-associated advertising websites, as well as their .NET developer platforms, and so much more. The list is really endless, but it solidifies, but it was really, really solidified, and you kind of understood the Microsoft strategy in business with their acquisition of the social media network LinkedIn in, to, in December of 2016. And what that essentially did is it put Microsoft smack down in the heart of all things that have to do with business. If you're an attorney, you use Office products. That's just the standard. People use Outlook email more than usual, more than I think any other. Although Gmail has a higher, the G Suite business does have a higher market share simply because of its pricing and its, its accessibility per user um, for small businesses. But when you look at enterprise, Outlook dominates enterprise. So. What does all this really mean? Well, this means that Microsoft is positioning itself right smack down in the middle of all things in the business world, from small business solutions like Office 365 to enterprise solutions like Azure. And Microsoft is primarily positioned to own this market for the foreseeable future. And they've put themselves smack down in the middle of it all. So what's the risk with Microsoft to us consumers? Well, let's dig in for a moment and think big picture here. Most, 90% of the market today uses the Office suite that Microsoft owns, whether it be Word, PowerPoint, Excel, OneNote, you name it. 90% market share, that is a domination, that is a monopoly. No one comes close. According to Statista.com, Microsoft has 35% of U.S. usage of its Office 365 Outlook server. Gmail has, uh, the Gmail business suite is in first place with around 50 almost 55 or 60%. Azure, its cloud services platform, ranks number two behind Amazon with 15% market share. Obviously, we've uh, if you've listened and you're a, uh, a usual listener to the Goodbye Privacy podcast, I did a whole episode on Amazon that you can go back and listen to where we spoke about the AWS services and Microsoft ranks right there number two and it's increasing its market share and becoming more dominant in the cloud space. LinkedIn is the number one platform globally for business networking. Skype for Business has 44% market share based on research from Spiceworks. This stat was slightly a bit more difficult for me to figure out and find a consensus simply because there were so many ways that people looked at Skype, whether it be from a messaging platform to a business platform. I decided to look at Skype for Business, which is the voice over IP solution that they've integrated into their Microsoft Dynamics solution to provide an all-in-one solution for enterprise businesses when it comes to calling. And so they own the market there with 44%. All these numbers tell me one thing. Microsoft is slowly gaining market share and it's challenging Amazon, Google, and Facebook on every single aspect of the market. They are number two in almost every category. So in, in cloud, Amazon's number one, Microsoft is number two. In social media networks, they're number three behind Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Twitter. On 
the Office Suite and document sharing, so their OneDrive service is number three behind Dropbox and um, Google Drive. They're right there in the mix. They're in the top three of everything. So they're slowly getting readapted. And mind you, their Surface product where they're really going after Apple's core business, which is the creative minds. Apple in their Mac products was really going after the creative folks. I mean, we all remember the evolution of Apple was they would send a MacBook to a movie producer so that they can use it in the movie. And you would see the movie like you see my podcast. And if you're watching us on YouTube or on our Patreon channel, you see that I'm using a Mac. So Microsoft is really focused now on getting the Surface product out there and going after the creative folks and getting a bigger market share on that aspect as well. But where do they rank in terms of privacy and data privacy and security? Now, before I answer that, I want to invite you to join us on September 11th, 2019 in beautiful Atlanta, Georgia for the annual CyberHub Summit. CyberHub Summit is the go-to cybersecurity conference for executives and those passionate about security. This conference isn't just another conference with panels and speakers, but rather CyberHub Summit is focusing on helping attendees experience cyber different. This year, CyberHub Summit has an amazing agenda of how we can work to address the various cybersecurity challenges on topics like homeland security, fintech, and industrial control systems. All three of these verticals are critical to our national infrastructure and national security. Together, you'll go through a exercise and view different attack vectors in these specific segments. This isn't just for the cybersecurity enthusiasts, it's for the business owners, the executives, and the board members. This isn't technical, it's rather practical, operational. You will leave this conference understanding what you need to do in your business to build a more resilient program. Tickets go on sale next week, so make sure you go to cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James, cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James. Again, that's cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James to pre-register now and be able to get your hands on the tickets. This is a very limited event. Tickets will sell out early, so make sure you go now to pre-register. That's that. So we get back to Microsoft, and here's the deal with Microsoft. So Apple and Microsoft have been portraying themselves publicly as champions of privacy and security. And that's been one of their key components to continue and gain public and consumer trust. But where do they rank on this? I mean, is it all just headlines and PR, or are they really serious about the about our privacy and our security online and is it really a core belief within the organization so i'm gonna start with the latter microsoft president brad smith has published multiple blog posts recently calling for regulation to protect consumer privacy online and put protection of data and privacy first and he's in fact pushing a statewide law in microsoft's home state of washington to do just that in 2013, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadala told the crowd, your privacy is our top priority, and later added that privacy is, and I quote, a human right. Listening to them, reading the headlines, and if you just 
Go to any search engine you use and you put in Microsoft privacy, you'll see a headline uh, once a week of Microsoft talking about privacy, keeping their brand right there in the discussion of what privacy is all about. Now, all this sounds good. The question is, is it real? Is it tangible? Or are they doing this just to get us to spend money and retrust Microsoft again? So if you're a usual listener to the Goodbye Privacy Podcast, you know I don't take things at face value. We dig deep. We spend some time. We work our fingers to the bone to get to the bottom line of what does it really mean. And we did just that with Microsoft. So we took at various terms of use and privacy policies that Microsoft has on all various different products. And they have a different privacy policy for a small business than enterprise, than a developer, than everything else. Now I will give Microsoft, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna start with the good about Microsoft. So while in episode number one and other episodes, I always talk about how terms and conditions, even if you read them, are scary and they're full of legal jargon that you don't really understand. Microsoft's completely different on that aspect. And we saw that when we explored LinkedIn, LinkedIn's terms and conditions. Simply because Microsoft writes its privacy policy very simple. That any person who reads it understands it. And that's great. While it's simple, it's not specific. And part of it is I feel this is where they doubt most consumers' intelligence on this specific topic. So they do retain process and obtain a huge amount of data. And one of the key things is they say, we obtain your data from third party sources. And our hashtag data cartels is there for a reason because Microsoft gets and shares data from Facebook, from LinkedIn that they own, from Twitter, from Instagram, from WhatsApp, from every single social media out there on top of probably the cloud services that they use in so many other places. They obtain our data. They have, if you think of how important your fingerprint is, and in our most recent episode, we spoke about the biometric data in the EU. The same applies here with Microsoft. They have an entire footprint of everything we do. Their advantage is that they run the business platform. So while you might have a Gmail address for your personal use, your company may use Outlook 365 and using Outlook 365 allows them to use that specific product to start tracing you everywhere else online. And they use the same exact excuse everyone else does. And we've reviewed this previously on the Goodbye Privacy Podcast. We do all this and we collect all this data and we process it to give you a better experience. Okay. Let's say that's true. And I mean, let's say, let's argue to the fact that maybe that's true. Words are one thing and actions another. Here's my counter argument to this claim. And this here, folks, is my personal opinion. I urge an open debate on this. You're more than welcome to join me on this thing and I'm happy to debate anyone on this topic. If Microsoft President Brad Smith is so worried about data privacy, 
Why is he waiting for regulators and legislators to do anything about it? If it's so important to Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella to do where privacy is a basic human right, why just say it and not talk about it and not actually put it into your business? Lead in privacy. Set a standard that lawmakers can look at and go, oh, wow, Microsoft is really aggressive on privacy. They're really leading the way. They're setting the standard. They're setting the tone. They're not just talking about it. They're doing something about it. In many industries, especially new ones, typically there's a company that steps up to the plate, that self-regulates, that creates a standard that regulators look at, study, to then create a regulation or a legislation that makes sense. In the UK, the FCA created a sandbox for blockchain companies as blockchain was emerging in the financial sector so that they can study how blockchain companies regulate, how transactions work, and what things they should be concerned about. And that's helped the UK lead the market in blockchain development, especially from a legal and a sandbox standpoint. More companies went to the UK. Now, mind you, Brexit came and kind of ruined it and created uncertainty around the whole being FCA regulated. Is that license really going to carry over to the rest of Europe and so forth? But that's a whole different debate. The, regula- the companies in the FCA sandbox created a level of regulation and each company kind of did its own thing. The regulator said, hey, these are the basics. Anything you do above that, we want to study and see. And companies did do that. And it helped the FCA now write a very good regulation and legislation around blockchain technology, especially in the financial markets. Why is Microsoft not leading the way in data privacy? Talking about it is one thing. Doing something about it is completely different. Why are we not doing something about this? If you're so confident and you're so passionate and you're outspoken. Microsoft spends millions and millions of dollars on lobbyists. Create a standard, go to your lobbyists, say, here's what we're doing at Microsoft. Here's how we're handling privacy. Here's how we're handling consumer rights. This is a framework for you, Mr. Senator or Congressman, to go on to, to go to your peers and champion our cause for data privacy and data security. Instead, they're going the state route. For those who are unaware of how difficult it is to operate in the U.S. in terms of security, I'll give you a little insight. The United States has no regulation when it comes to data breach notification on a federal level, meaning when you go through a breach, you have to report to 50 different states the breach. 50 different attorney generals need to be notified that your company suffered a breach. This is very costly for organizations. Most smaller organizations have no way of handling this, and that's why when you hear a statistic that says 60% of small businesses go out of business suffering a cyber breach, The reason for it isn't just the cost of the cyber breach. It's the fact that they are going to have to notify 
a minimum of one attorney general if they operate in one state, but most companies in the U.S. operate in more than one state. So I have to notify the attorney general in every single state. And there's a law and there's rules around notification, time frame, what it is, how you're supposed to notify those folks. And those cost a lot of money to do. So now we all obviously, and if you're a privacy warrior and advocate, you've heard about the California Consumer Protection uh, Act, the CCPA which is supposed to uh, begin enforcement in July of next year in California. And the CEO of Microsoft, Brad Smith, understanding that we have 50 different data breach notification laws state by state, understanding how difficult that is for organizations, is advocating for a privacy law in the state of Washington. You're Microsoft. You're global. You're international. You're a powerhouse. Put your weight behind what your words are and go out there and advocate in D.C. where it really matters. And before you do that, create what you want written in the law in your own organization. But this is where Microsoft's words are cheap. Their talk is cheap. It's all a big PR stunt. Because they could care less about our privacy. They're making so much money doing it so much money with our data for free. They have no reason to really aggressively push for this kind of privacy or this kind of discussion. They want it for the PR. They want it to make us feel good. They write their terms and conditions in a way where they feel like most consumers can understand it. So they seem friendly. They don't seem like a big evil corporation trying to nail you with some legal mumbo jumbo. But I challenge Brad Smith, I challenge um, the CEO of Microsoft, if you really do believe in privacy, enact it in your own policies. Tell us how you use our data. Be specific. Say, what is our right to get you to delete our data? Because right now, if you, I don't give you my personal information. I can't use your product. You clearly state that in your privacy terms and conditions. So my challenge to Microsoft is stop talking and start doing. If you're big on privacy like you say you are, be an example. Lead the way. I guarantee you that whatever financial risk or loss you think you're going to lose, you will gain with consumers that will truly trust you and appreciate the fact that you're leading the way. How Apple led the smartphone revolution, Microsoft can lead and has the power to lead the privacy revolution and evolution in this country and globally. My only hope is that Microsoft really picks up this challenge, takes it on, and does something about it. Now to our final story of the day. On our first episode of Goodbye Privacy, I spoke of Facebook and WhatsApp. And this week, WhatsApp indicated that some users were breached by a spyware that could infect the user. And it infected the user by simply receiving a phone call on your WhatsApp. And even if you didn't answer it, the spyware would be downloaded to your device. It's based on initial research, this spyware was tracked back to the NSO group. This is the same NSO group and the same company that's now being sued 
for its alleged involvement in selling a tool to the Saudi government to help spy and track uh, now deceased but former Washington Post journalist Jamal Khwajali. WhatsApp has released and said everyone should update their app and these are the following versions of the app that need to be updated. So if you have this version or anything before these versions, you really should be updating your app. It takes a few seconds, just do it. So WhatsApp for Android, it's prior to version 2.19.134. WhatsApp Business for Android is version 2.19.44. WhatsApp for iOS, it's prior to version 2.19.51. WhatsApp Business for iOS is for version 2.19.51. WhatsApp for Windows phones prior to version 2.18.348. And WhatsApp for Tizen prior... Never heard it. What's Tizen? I don't know what that is. Sorry. Please educate me. Uh, to version 2.18.15. But let's get to the bottom of this. So the NSL group is behind a spyware called and a product called Pegasus. And on its website, it claims that it sells its software and licenses to government agencies around the world to fight crime and terror. And this is where cybersecurity, which today is a largely unregulated commercial market for the most part, depending on different countries and depending on the products. But for the most part, NSO Group has alleged to gain, um, they're based out of Israel and they've said that they've gained approval from the Israeli government to sell this product. Um, we haven't received or seen any confirmation or anything to contradict that statement or anything to confirm that specific statement. However, this is the danger of some cyber tools because this same exact tool, Pegasus, is the one that's being used to breach WhatsApp. So the question is, is it being used by a government in this WhatsApp breach? Or did this tool leak to some really bad people who are using it to gain specific access to specific people's devices? The number of victims in this breach is unknown. It's unknown because while we in the United States don't really use WhatsApp as often, in the world, globally, WhatsApp is extremely popular. In my time traveling across the world, across Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, I used primarily WhatsApp for all communication. One, because of the encryption. Number two, because it was free. And number three, because it was convenient and it didn't take up a lot of data. So I can buy a data plan and typically use WhatsApp for the entire time I was there in messaging and talking without incurring egregious long-distance call costs. So the popularity of WhatsApp globally and the impact of this specific breach outside of the U.S. remains to be seen. So if you do use WhatsApp, don't delete the app, just update it. And if you want to delete it, that's fine. You can use different apps. There's Telegram and many others out there that use encryption that are messaging apps. Just make sure that you're always and constantly updating your phone. One of the things that I do as a best practice every night is I go into the app store and I check what updates exist. And if there's an update, I update it on all my devices. 
And that includes your desktops, your tablets, your phones, everything. Check it. Nightly, weekly. Do it on a Sunday night. Do it on a Friday afternoon before you leave work. Have the updates run all weekend. But really do do something about it. And another good practice is if you do use WhatsApp, there's an option to block all incoming calls from unknown numbers. So you can only get calls from people within your contact list. Now, that doesn't mean that the people who want to do this can't spoof a number on your WhatsApp, but you do reduce the risk. That's it for today's episode. Next time on Goodbye Privacy, we're going to examine one year after GDPR. Has privacy really improved in Europe? Thanks for listening or watching. Make sure you subscribe and rate our podcast. We are the fastest growing cybersecurity and privacy podcast in the country. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. James Azar here with Goodbye Privacy. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. I really appreciate your support. But I've got a favor to ask of you. And you guys know I don't always ask for favors. But we're a very, very new podcast. We're so overwhelmed by the amount of people that listen and tune in to our podcast every single week. So I've decided to pay you. Yep, I've decided to give you some money. Should be reversed, but not this time. If you'll go to your favorite platform to listen to podcasts, wherever that is, give us a five-star rating and comment about how great you love our podcast. Tell us what you love about our podcast. You will automatically enter a drawing to win a $50 Amazon gift card. So all you have to do is go to your favorite podcast listening platform, whether it be iTunes, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to us. Give us a five-star rating. Take a screenshot. Go to any one of the CyberHub Engage social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook. Upload that screenshot, and you will automatically enter a drawing on May 30th to win a $50 Amazon gift card. Thank you.